Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we welcome back our friend, freelance writer, and PC culture editor at GamesBeat. Okay, PC guest post editor at GamesBeat, Rowan Kaiser. Rowan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again, after every week. That's true. Well, you're... you're you, uh, I'm leaning on you pretty heavily, and I'm and I'm trying to build our rapport uh, for the Justified podcast. It's, it's uh, coming. On. Yeah, uh, we are also joined by our friend once again, still the Games King, Sean Sands. I notice you never get my honorifics wrong. I appreciate that. I appreciate that attention to detail. Uh, so today we're going to be tackling the uh, this month's sort of podcast poll topic, and it was it was a real nail biter. It came down between what makes a good diplomacy system, and in particular bargaining, uh, which narrowly lost, and instead we're going to be discussing satisfying setbacks. Uh, in a word, when do we like it when games are mean to us versus <laughs> what does a game do wrong or when does it feel like a game is telling us to just give up, dwell upon our failures... And either uninstall or restart or maybe just reload that save where everything went wrong. So that's kind of what I want to dig into. And I mean, right off, right out of the gate, I, I gotta, I gotta say, it, this feels like a bit of a paradox topic as well because <laughs> I think paradox strategy games are one of a real handful that I feel really comfortable just sort of playing it as it lays, no matter how badly things go. Really? Because I'm, I'm at least with uh, EU4, which, you know, is, is sort of my go-to game. Um, if things fall apart, actually, that tends to be a game where I'm much more likely to go back and simply restart. And I don't know. Maybe that's because at this point I feel like... Um, I feel like time is short in, in that game relative to usually what I'm trying to accomplish. And so... Um, you know, generally these days, my, my E4 runs tend to be achievement runs and kind of regrouping on that, uh, usually feels like it's, it's just, it's, it's just better to go, kind of go back and, and count the run dead and, and put yourself in a better position. So it's interesting because that was my first thought as well was, was paradox games. And I actually, I find that a little bit of the opposite like there's that that doesn't tend to be the game i power through on to some degree i the 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 first game that actually came to mind for me was was steel division normandy 44 which again is a paradox game but um but but that that's one where i do just sort of take my licks and live through it and come hell or high water and just kind of power through or ultimately be killed and say well yep that's pretty much how that was going to go down from the start i think it's so with, with paradox i gotta ask were you always started playing it that way or is this a behavior that's become more and more prevalent ever since you started going for achievements because like because you're you're where few mortals have dared go uh you are now multi-thousands of hours <laughs> into into eu i'm i'm old enough to remember when you broke a thousand hours and mm-hmm. you were like i don't know how much more of this is left for me well turns out Apparently, at least double <laughs> uh but I'm curious, like, did you always play it that way? Or once you were no longer playing it just to play the game, but we're now specifically trying to accomplish 
given in-game conditions or given end-game conditions, mm-hmm. um, did that change how you were relating to EU4? I, I, you know, honestly, I think outside of maybe certainly my first playthrough and maybe my second, I switched to this mode of playing the game very quickly. It's actually, I think, the primary thing that sustains me through the game is this very objective based. And I mean, to to the point of the question, you know, what when do you kind of power through? When do you take the lumps? And when do you have, you know, a, a kind of recognize a setback and turn it around? I think this very objective based kind of approach to it tends to drive me towards not kind of, you know, if something goes wrong, great, I'm just going to go back, restart, whatever. Um, and, and it's kind of how I've always played the game, except when I was first learning the basic mechanics of it. Um, and and yeah, it's it, there's something about that objective component that is more about the efficiency of that objective. How well can I, even if it's not a time thing, how well can I get there? Um, how quickly can I can I kind of finish this run and get through it? Um, that takes me down the, that different path. Well, I think when we're talking about the satisfying setback, like we're we're sort of talking about multiple different things here, playing a game where you're slowly losing or slowly not getting the thing that your, your objective that you're trying to accomplish is, uh, one way of having a satisfying setback. Like that's a, that's a fun way to play Crusader Kings too, but also trying to get an achievement in EU4 and then restarting and enjoying that process, learning from it would also potentially be a satisfying setback for him sure just maybe not the one that rob asked about initially so are you are you like satisfied even when you lose in that way and feeling like you're learning getting closer whatever yeah and there's i mean i think that that's a really good point because there are lots of games where uh, you know strategy games and all kinds where that setback feels unfair and then does not feel worth going back to and yeah looking at it kind of at a multi-game angle absolutely then i would say those satisfying setbacks are almost always instructive to what i am trying to do the nice thing about it is it's not a situation where you can just it'll you're you're not just going to re-roll and get the same dice every time right It, it it is going to be a different game next time and so you're not just kind of plowing back in and trying to do the exact same thing over again with the same conditions the conditions in your next game even if you're chasing after that same achievement are going to be different and i think that actually also lends a a a a a satisfying element to that setback and that retry because i can take something i learned but recognize i'm also going to have to adjust that into the element of whatever the new situation in the new game is not just kind of mimic i I hate games where you're just like oh this boss you know kills me here so i have to hit this jump before that but like where it's just pattern memorization i'm not interested in that well this sort of goes to i think one of the best games at making losing fun which is uh Dwarf Fortress's motto, so the accessible Dwarf Fortress Rimworld, I think, is mm-hmm. one of my favorites in terms of getting a satisfying setback in terms of even if you lose. For one thing, it's often hilarious. You have someone, you know, living in 120 degree heat suddenly go nuts and start murdering everyone or yeah that was just the example that came to mind for california this weekend i don't know why um don't have an air conditioner installed Ooh. quite yet 
moment <laughs> and uh it's game over um so what what Rimworld does really well is that you have all these various different systems that are all kind of tied together and prioritizing which of those systems are the ones that you want to work on uh, at any given point is kind of the how you learn that game. So one game, you might just not have any of your little colonists assigned to cleaning and everyone just gets increasingly pissed off that there's they're living in a horrible place and eventually everything kind of disintegrates. So the next game you realize, okay, I need to take more time for cleaning. And it's a consistent push of, oh, now I get why this is important. And now I get what I need from my colonists in order for that importance to be realized. And sometimes randomly you won't get that and you have to work around it. And that's fun too. So I think you, it's, it's a matter of, you know, what the game is teaching you to prioritize and what the game is, you know, putting obstacles in front of you for prioritizing when you have these complex systems that really makes losing fun. Do you tend to be a narrative player when it comes to RimWorld? I mean, as far as... Because one of the things I think in... in particularly in that game, both in the multi-game angle, but even in a single game, when the colony is clearly falling apart, where there is no reasonable sense that you're going to recover, like people are starting to die, you know, things are on fire, there's attacks coming too frequently, you just don't, all your crops are dead, whatever. I will keep persisting to the bitter end, primarily because I feel like I'm telling a narrative, uh, you know, a tragic drama that will never end well for these poor souls trapped in my story but i have to see it through to the bitter huh. end to know how the last person dies and if it happens to be because a rabbit that was on fire bit them to death which <laughs> happened for sure in one of my games then i want to know that ending i definitely want to know that ending uh well there are sort of two sides to that um rimworld has fairly discrete systems so if you have one of those things, like if you lose your cook, um, then you can manage losing the cook in a certain ways. And sometimes you can't manage that. Um, but also because the systems are relatively discrete and relatively simple, you could l go from a colony of like nine people to one person. And that one person can survive for a while and possibly even, you know, rebuild because each of these systems is kind of an added layer of complexity when you get another one or two colonists. Um, so even if things are going straight to hell, there is a possibility in that game. And uh, alternative comparison, I don't know if you played any Oxygen not included yet, but this mm -hmm. is a game that is fairly similar in concept. You're building a base inside an asteroid, but it is one closed system. All, they're, they're sharing all the water. They're sharing all the air. And if anything starts to go wrong there, everyone is going to be dying slowly. There's not really a way around it where RimWorld, you can just like say, I'm not hunting anymore. I'm not farming anymore. I need to manage my people's time. Where in Oxygen Not Included, they're all out of air. There's not a way for them to come back from all being out of air. Um, this is this is not necessarily one is better than the other or not, but it does give RimWorld more more of a chance to come back from a failure. Well, those are really interesting examples of, of failure, and uh, they all sound awful. 
to an extent. <laughs> I, uh, but then I'm somebody who hates Tharsis. Like I, I played Tharsis and was ev- just eventually hit a point where I was like, you can go straight to hell because the entire point of that game was to generate these uh, failure spirals, these these cascades. And what it came down to was were you willing to parse the math long enough to, you know, figure out what the tightrope path was through the uh, through the escalating disaster. And that didn't feel what I never liked about that is it always felt like once something had slipped a little bit out of whack, there was no way to restabilize. Like from that point forward, you were just going to be like Basil Fawlty running from one <laughs> escalating disaster to the next. But you, there was no way to pull this out. Like barring some like mathematical miracles, you were not going to salvage that situation. And so it felt like your first mistake, and sometimes it didn't feel like a, a mistake. Sometimes it just felt like you got a bad draw. And that was kind of the the beginning of the end. It might take a turn or two, but this was all going to come crashing down uh, pretty quickly. And I'm not really, I guess I don't really enjoy that. Like, there are games that sort of encourage you to stop what you're doing and, okay, take what you've learned, restart, see how much further you can get with this new knowledge. There are some games that do that. But I think it's really frustrating when even after you have sort of internalized how a lot of things work, whenever you're still that one small glitch away, like... Uh, so my partner does a lot of civilian rocketry. Uh, she she flies rockets. And a lot of times rockets blow up. It's just the nature of the beast, right? But a lot of times when you get the telemetry back, you can identify the exact moment when failure was inevitable. And it's, sometimes it's pretty early into the flight. It's it's a small little oscillation in the 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 uh, the rocket's flight path. But the problem is the os- the oscillation never stops happening. It just keeps rebounding again and again. Like that first wobble begets a larger wobble and then a larger one. And there is no way to stabilize a rocket that once it starts to do that. And games that are designed that same way, where you see that first moment where you're just a little bit out of balance. And the moment you see that crop up, it's like a terminal diagnosis for your run. That kind of frustrates me and I have a really hard time doing what you're doing Sean which is like basically playing um I don't know who the dudes were who were with Balin in uh in Moria but the dudes who like saw it all going wrong and were like all right I better write this shit down (laughs) but like I can't do that I'm like you know what fuck this I I mean it depends on the game right I I don't think you're the only person who had issues with Darsis in this way I haven't played it so I I can't say whether you're right or wrong but I know other people thought the game was too determined by the random numbers. RimWorld is somewhat determined by that. Oxygen not included needs more. Um, But if we're going to talk about, to go back to where we started here, like a game that makes that really, really fun and the game that's at its best with that and not as a regular strategy game is Crusader Kings 2. Mm -hmm. Crusader Kings 2, you start getting that wobble, everything starts going nuts, and now you've got like the most fun that you're going to have in that game. Like Mm. you, you... you have a you have a kingdom one and you declare a war on you know another kingdom that you can probably beat but you know your uncle who has a giant duchy says this is my time to seize the crown and now you are in into a 
you know, cascading set of potential failures and fighting out of that is, I think, when Crusader Kings 2 is at its best. When you're trying to, you know, pull in all these random alliances that will just get you out of whatever trap you have found yourself into and maybe those aren't great long-term alliances but you need them right now um that's that's one of my favorite examples of this and one of the my problems with crusader kings as i've gotten better at it is that it's harder and harder to get in those situations because i am good enough to like nip them in the bud before they're happening and that's kind of disappointing for me because you know i love I love that feeling of panic in that game. In other games, it's not so good. Yeah, I I totally agree because, you know, we were talking about the sort of the the objective way, objective-based way I play EU4 before. And Crusader Kings 2 is the exact opposite of that, even though it's largely, I mean, in a very surface, you know, non-sophisticated way, it's largely looking at a giant map of the world and kind of, you know, approaching it trying to see what you can do on that map. EU4 has a very clear focus on sort of, you know, growth and expansion, all these things. But Crusader Kings 2 is so steeped in its narrative of the story of a family, of of these individuals, good or bad, dumb or smart, whatever, that you have sort of put yourself into the shoes of, that harkens back to that same kind of concept I have around RimWorld that we were just talking about before, which is that the spiral, the the kind of the, the negatives are so offset by the fun of the story that I'm telling that I lose track of it. And I think, I mean, the nice thing about Crusader Kings 2, to me also, is even if, you know, like there's, there's ways out of the fail state, both from a player perspective and just the game sort of, it feels to me has a sort of element that just reverts back to like, like it's driving back to a, a nominal state um, in a lot of cases. So if you fail utterly, you're probably not, you know, it's not a game over screen. Isn't going to pop up most of the time. And that's another, that's that, like that, that knowledge that I sort of have a safety valve, both in just how the game is going to generate and kind of proceed. And if the story of this character is, oh, we had lots of land and then we lost a bunch of it. And now we're just this tiny little thing like that's, then that's the story that, um, kind of that, that the game has told me. And, and I enjoy that. I get into that side of things. I mean, just, just what I'd say there is, I think, yeah, I, th- I think it has that that help two things help crusader kings one is yes it's it's telling these stories that can have a variety of outcomes that are still like narratively satisfying to you and then i think that failure cycle that spiral tends to also have a floor now that floor can be pretty damn low like your character like you can see a lot of things break against you and your air might be taking over from really bad position but at the same time your air will kind of get a clean slate, right? right. Like to to, uh, to some to some extent. Like you're going to take over, you're going to have a new run with this new character, and now you just have new objectives, and they might be like reclaiming some of what you've lost. But what it's not going to be is you being stuck with the character who was losing everything and all the bad relationships until the game eliminates you. Until like your character and and that faction is like actively exterminated, that's not really how Crusader Kings works most of the time, and I think that that helps like that that ability to sort of reframe what you're there for uh, as being ultimately about a story rather than conquest, and then 
also framing it as you're not this faction, you're not this this noble family, you are kind of one ruler at a time. And that is it's it's kind of the roguelike thing, right? Like what what are you gonna do with this run and the challenges you encounter along the way? There are a couple things here that I think complicate Crusader Kings too. Um and I think it it sort of leads to the complication of how do you actually make losing in a strategy game fun? And that is that uh the the lack of straightforward lose conditions is not handled entirely elegantly, possibly because it's impossible to handle elegantly. So to take two examples, the biggest lose condition that you are most likely to face is that you don't have a male heir. And like, you know, you have your your current ruler or your next heir is a woman who has been married to another family and her kid is not part of your family and if he takes over that's just game over that is by far the most likely game over screen that you are going to see in crusader kings unless you're like in the middle of a religious war and the mongols show up or you know whoever um and that's that's really frustrating because it means that that there's this fairly arbitrary law rule of from this that's a sort of gamified version of the idea of what this era should be like that just sort of ends what you're doing and that's um fun to work around a couple times but when that's the only threat that you're actually facing and it's uh just you know a quirk of genetics combined with a quirk of the game then it's not not especially cool the other thing is that you have these sort of lose conditions that are actually win conditions um to take a, a different example, let's say you're, you know, you are the relatively young leader of a fairly large duchy or kingdom, and you don't have enough power to stop your, you know, uncle or um, whoever from switching the law to seniority. And so you spend your entire time trying to, like, get the seniority laws adjusted in a way that, you know, make your family still prosper. You don't necessarily succeed at that. So then you take over as the person on the other side of the duchy who's been your family's rival for the entire time. Now they have all the land that you had prior. They're just, like, in terms of the role-playing that you might have been trying to do a moment before, they're the bad guys, now you're them, and you're in a better state because you lost. And, like, that's not... I hate I hate it when that happens, even though it technically might make me more powerful. It goes against the idea of the role-playing or the story or whatever that the game is best when it's encouraging. And these are two things that I think happen because it's really hard to design a strategy game where losing is actually fun and um the loss states are things that you you know kind of want the player to work around and deal with so that you don't end up with like your experience with arsis rob but you also don't have a straightforward like civilization game i lost these two cities i quit um and I don't know. It's it's a difficult it's a difficult sort of design decision. I think you mentioned the mechanics earlier, and I mean I think that's sort of central to my degree of satisfaction with a lose condition um, or a a setback condition. I was thinking earlier um, that when I first played XCOM two, uh, 
and and I don't I, I think others probably had this experience too. I, I spent the first six or seven hours of that game largely kind of frustrated with the way the mechanics were operating and frustrated with actually making it work. But there was something about it. This was one where it wasn't it wasn't till later that it was a satisfying setback, but ultimately persisting and understanding and kind of going back and, and kind of recognizing that, oh, you know what? I'm actually not playing this game the way I'm, I'm playing the game the way I want it to be played. And the mechanics here are such that what I really need to do is this and this and this and this um, kind of drew, ended up driving me to approaching the game differently and having ultimately a very positive experience with it. But Usually what I find is when a game, a strategy game or any kind of game presents me with a challenge that is difficult or feels impossible to overcome, the situations when I'm not going to persist, where I'm going to kind of either put it away or feel really negative about it or persist just kind of out of sheer stubbornness is when it's more about mechanics and particularly mechanics that feel arbitrary so i i haven't i haven't played uh, tharsis either but that idea of these kind of mechanic systems in the game that drive a certain narrative spiral are exactly the sort of things that would end up pushing me away from a game regardless of you know regardless of you know whether i could ultimately overcome them um so i i guess i i really feel like mechanics are kind of the central theme where where story is the central theme to the idea of what is going to be a satisfying setback to me the other side of it of what is going to sort of be a negative setback tends to be mechanics based i think xcom 2 is a very good game to mention especially after what we talked about last week where um a lot of XCOM, the, I'm talking about the modern ones, uh, a lot of the two XCOM games have this sort of thing where the first time or two that you play them, you are learning how the game systems actually work and learning what mistakes will actually damn you to failure. <laughs> but those mistakes are things that you might not realize for hours. Like, you can get 10 hours into yep. a game that you lost two hours in when, you know, your elite snipers got, all got killed or whatever. And that is not necessarily a pleasant experience for a lot of people. And I thought it was very clever with XCOM 2 that um, Firaxis said, you know, most people lost their first game, so we're going to make that canon. Um, that's that's a neat idea. Uh, it's They also kept that idea in XCOM 2 and arguably made it worse. Um, which is i i don't know it, it not I, arguable <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's it's not arguable that it's there i'm not sure if it's actually worse or not but um well i mm, yeah, go ahead i no i i, I was going to say it does feel that like there's a difference between xcom 2 but i actually think they just do a better job job of spotlighting what's new so like in xcom 1 you'd see new alien types show up and it was like, oh, I haven't seen that before. This is this is new, but for some reason, it always felt like I don't know. It like XCOM two often felt like it was in the middle of a mission, kind of like changing the rules on me in mm -hmm. a way that XCOM one never did quite. Like with XCOM one, I was never sitting there like completely dumbfounded at times. It's like, okay, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> Whereas XCOM two, uh, it was like each time. 
I met a new monster, it was like, oh, that completely upends my understanding of this thing. And so, like, a couple of those early games, I think another reason that that amplified that feeling that, um, you know, you had to stay on the right track the entire way through was that it felt like, okay, it felt a little bit Dark Souls-ish, I guess, in that uh, some of the enemy types I'd encounter... Um, would really be devastating on first encounter in in a way that was like, yeah, cool. Like thematically, this is neat. This is a cool beat. Like uh, some sort of messed up giant just appeared and like wrecked one of my dudes. That's neat. Uh, but then at the same time, it did sort of amplify that feeling that XCOM was a game that fundamentally wanted you to memorize where all the traps were and the entire like structure of the game and then navigate using that foreknowledge. And, and that that kind of didn't sit right, and the monsters were just one expression of that. But I think it was something that ran through the game in a way that it didn't as much with XCOM One. Uh, this is the thing we forgot to talk about last week, which is permadeath. When you have a game that is designed around permadeath, like a RimWorld or mm-hmm. like a Darkest Dungeon, or in many ways, I think Paradox Games—they don't call it permadeath or whatever—but I think Iron it's, Man, yeah, they 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 are generally built around the idea that you are playing a linear experience um reloading is i mean it's as possible as it is in like a civilization but i know i reload a hell of a lot less than in paradox games than i do in other grand strategy games um when you have a game that is designed around the idea that yeah this you are doing this linear run and it's going to be hard we can't screw you over by dropping a huge surprise on you that is just going to utterly destroy everything within this progression system. Like a darkest dungeon will occasionally drop a huge surprise on you, but that doesn't screw over everything. It just screws over one of your multiple parties of characters. Uh, whereas XCOM two seems to be built around save scumming. And I know that there is an iron man option, but it's an option. It's not the way the game is presented as how you should be playing. And I don't think it's the way that the game is, designed mm-hmm. like you run into one of those giant fucked up giants i, I assume you mean the updated sectopods but who knows <laughs> um they can one shot a character very easily that character might be your only you know i forget all the classes your only ranger that's worth a damn and suddenly you are paralyzed in terms of your tactical choices moving forward because you stepped forward two squares too far even though you had no idea that that was going to be two squares too far and you had no idea that was going to activate the sectopod and you had no idea that the sectopod was going to launch its lasers get a crit and now you're screwed well and that's and that's very much like the the panzer general uh model as well where it's like um okay so here's your here's your scenario and the way this game works the entire design of it is to like the, the the core dynamic in in the uh in the Panzer General games and its imitators is that a unit that blunders into another unit gets ambushed and gets like really wrecked. And very few units have like any kind of meaningful line of sight. Like scout units I think are pretty much the only ones that have any sort of like range of vision. And so it really becomes just a game about like 
memorizing where your scout unit units need to go to reveal the enemy so that you can walk up and kill the enemy. But if you ever put like if you ever like go wrong by one hex, there's a very good chance that uh you know the game's just going to blow up underneath you. And that is an effective way at and I think this is why it crops up again and again. It's an effective way at creating a form of challenge or the illusion of challenge, right? Like, ah, I didn't see you, you got me there game. I will know better next time. But like the solution is often, no, I will literally know better next time. It's not that I've learned a new tactic or a way to deal with the system. It is literally that I know when faced with this situation, that this given thing is about to happen or this, this given thing will happen. XCOM isn't quite that extreme. Uh, but it's a common it's a common model. There, there's something else I want to I want to get to though, and that is um, I like it when a game. Okay, what's what's the way to put this? Do you remember in the Michael Douglas classic film The Game <laughs> when everything has gone so horribly wrong? He's just like add hell with it and he throws himself off the building yes and and by the way it's a weird movie because in that movie somehow like the act of having committed suicide or at least what i thought was committing suicide like becomes his spiritual awakening and he's like grateful that everyone like screwed with his head until he did this but anyway he hits these layers of breakaway glass until he eventually like lands on a giant like air tent and a giant air cushion and then he gets to sort of like dust himself off and he, he's off to his new life. Like he's beginning from a new place, his old position, all the things that were sort of, that he's sort of carrying with him, uh, have been let go. His problems are like his, his, his real problems no longer seem so daunting. Um, I feel like I like it when a game lets me have that fall but then also lets me hit the breakaway glass and the cushion where like, I don't fall all the way to like nothing. Like I'm not completely exterminated, but I am allowed to plunge to like a reduced and in some ways like simpler circumstance from which I can begin coming back. And two examples I'll cite here. Uh, one is the surprisingly good patrician series of uh, trading games. Uh, which absolutely is one of those games where you build this really complicated trading machine, and if one little problem crops up in that machine, it will, as your trade route cycle, inevitably cause some sort of failure spiral that like kills a lot of the business. But at any point when you see it all going wrong in the Patrician series, you can start simplifying your trade routes. You know what I mean? You can you can basically start like closing routes. You can start shuttering shutting shuttering businesses. And you basically like are allowed to reset to a simpler and less demanding form of trading company. And then you can sort of try to put your lessons into practice again, but without having to start from scratch again. Uh, so at any time, you're basically able to sort of put your hands up and say, this is too much. And I'm going to let all this stuff fall away. And here's the core of the game I'm retaining. And I'm going to make my comeback from here. And I've seen that happen, and this is this is sort of where I was coming at with EU4. Mm-hmm. EU4 isn't like CK, where the whole point is just to have these like uh, stories and these goofy runs with these characters. But EU4 does, over the course of, you know, it's, it's a long game. There's a lot of history left to play. It does let you 
mount a comeback from pretty bad circumstances. Like you can, you know, you can basically get half conquered and then forced into uh, a personal union under a hostile king. That can happen. And that still might not be the end of the game. In fact, that might end up becoming uh, sort of the foundation for a glorious comeback story uh, that will make the game all the sweeter. And in the U4, maybe that won't happen, but you always know that's a possibility, especially if you've had it happen to you once or twice, where like impossible situations, you let half the empire go to hell and you have a tough, like, generation-long struggle to sort of reassemble. But then you're able to, you know, get back on your feet and wreak bloody vengeance on the people who who did this to you. And I think that's a really helpful thing. When games sort of have these arrested failures. Uh, like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to take a fall. You're going to get punished. But the game doesn't actually... The game is not actually interested in like then sort of walking over to your broken body and like grinding your face into the dirt and being like, yeah, tell me you like it, worm. Like that's not what that's not what these games want to do. It it's interesting because I you know particularly while you were talking about patrician, which I mean I think I think you're describing two the similar ideas on a, on a theme, but particularly the first one, I felt myself internally recoiling at what you were describing. And I, I was try- sitting here sort of struggling. Really? With, yes. With why is this not okay? And things like RimWorld and the the kind of restart mentality on EU4. For me, and like this is, I think, you know, I mean, obviously everybody's going to have a different take on this. Uh, you know, there are people out there who love Dark Souls. I kind of don't get it. it you know, it, it just, it doesn't appeal to me in the same way. But when you're talking about that, I realized what the problem was for me is the idea of accepting the reduction, either giving in and saying, here, game, I'm giving all this back to you so I can regroup back so I can spend the next two hours regrouping back here. And what I what I think is the theme that, that consistently when I look at Crusader Kings 2, when I look at RimWorld, when I look at these I want to go out fighting every, like, I don't want to relinquish one step in the sand to the game. And if oh, it wow. does, I'm coming, <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm going to push all the harder as the game pushes back on me. And there's something about, particularly in that patrician example, the idea of saying, okay, I'm going to sort of step back, reconsolidate, reform, uh, you know, and, and give up this so that I can get the long-term goal. And I, like, that's, that is a less satisfying approach to to a fail state, for lack of a better term. Well, for me, the game commissar has made his appearance. <laughs> Sean is making his Aragorn speech here. <laughs> uh, but it, I mean, it's it's interesting because, like. I, I really struggle with that approach and I, I can see it. And, and even in the games where, where, where I am sort of going into the fail state, I can see an option where is, because Rowan, I think you were talking about earlier, that option of saying, okay, I'm down to one person. What I really need to do is kind of cut this, cut this, cut this, cut this, and reduce down to that one person approach. And no, I'm out there screaming at the snow as it's falling, saying, I'll, I'll plant my crops today anyway. I don't care what, you know, it's just like that, that is. And I guess that's the story that I'm looking for. Like, I love that, that, that kind of persisting throughout the noble end of, you know, <laughs> you know, never, never, don't, never give up, never surrender, whatever. Um, 
So that I, I just think that's interesting that that that's an approach I can't really relate to. I think you need to play more Fortress. I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> It'll pass EU four. I guarantee. <laughs> no, don't set me down this road. The, mark mark the time and date. When when was Sean's ruin drawn? Oh, it was. <laughs> Has anyone seen Sean in the last like two years? No, I don't know. <laughs> He's the game king under the mountain. Yes, yes. Uh, that's boy. That is that is really interesting because for me, what you're describing leads to to me all those negative emotions, right? Like mm-hmm. being there, screaming at the inevitable as it all goes to hell. To me, that's really profoundly negative because maybe there's like a one in a million shot of a comeback, but. By and large, it's going to it's going to basically be the game version of the uh, what was it two thousand ten two thousand ten Bears Packers conference championship game. Oh, okay. uh, it's basically going to be that for me, <laughs> uh, it, you know, but in slow motion. And I just don't have any interest in that. Like, I would rather the game sort of give me a glide path to. Not necessarily a safe point, but a place from a place at which it will basically say, "All right, you've said uncle, gonna stop whipping on you." Now, you uh, but can. you have to say uncle. Like, how can you say uncle? How can you? That's that's yeah. That's that's the <laughs> thing that matters. Sure. How a man falls down. <laughs> like I, I am, I am. Yeah, it, it's. Yeah, you. I, I think I've made my position clear. I think I'm burying myself here in my position, but. <laughs> Sean will not lose this argument. No, that's right. <laughs> burn <laughs> it to the ground. Shut this podcast. I will burn this podcast to the ground before I'll give in. <laughs> so, Rowan, Sean's a fanatic, and we know that. Now. That's fair. <laughs> Apparently. But I do fair. feel like the situation I was sketching is also how one of our favorite games tends to handle failure, and that's, um, you know, Darkest Dungeon. The... Uh, you know, Darkest Dungeon isn't vindictive. It feels vindictive, but it it always it, it it always does seem to let you go home, lick your wounds, and yeah, it might be excruciating, but you can basically start over mid-game. You can basically like grind your way back to where you were without necessarily just getting beat up endlessly. I mean, Darkest Dungeon could maybe actually use that kind of uh, screaming into the void thing that Sean actually wants because like a lot of the time when you get into that mid-game grind it doesn't really feel worth it like why not just quit take a few weeks off start a new game later I I, I don't think I've ever actually said you know I really want to redo this whole early game thing even though I lost all my level 4 heroes it's so it, at the macro level, I think maybe it could actually use a little more of that. But at the sort of micro level, oh, I lost this. Even just one party is a thing that is totally something you can come back from. You can sort of redesign what your plan for the next week is. Instead of, you know, having an elite party go out, you see that, oh, here's a good chance for me to build up some of my weaker characters in this particular dungeon. At this point, this will give me, you know, some of the items that I need in order to build that up better. And that's good for everybody. Um, So at the micro level, I think it's a really good example of that. At the macro level, I think it, it could still use, um, 
a little teensy bit of pressure. And that that's the thing that I, I sort of thought when, when you were talking about what you liked and what you didn't, Rob, is that um, where is the, the pressure coming that will make you stop playing? So in an EU4, um, the and in CK2 to some extent, the pressure is basically that small political entities are slowly turning into empires or slowly turning into nation states. Um, at the start of an EU4 game, there are, you know, 40 different entities in Europe. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the game, there are eight. Mm-hmm. Or it depends on how many little yeah. tiny ones are still alive. But, you, but it, it, it is a game of consolidation. Right. Um, so the pressure in both CK2 and EU4 is basically... Am I going to be able to survive this and be one of those states at the end? And even if you lose half your territory as a Poland or as a Russia, that might still be possible. Um, and that's in large part because there's also a pressure that comes from winning. If you win a war where you take a huge amount of territory, mm-hmm. potentially everyone starts hating you. That territory takes a long-ass time to be integrated into your empire. You might have lost a bunch of manpower. You might lose a bunch of manpower putting down the rebellions in that area. Winning is not necessarily an immediate inherent good. And even if you're losing to the computer, you know, you have claims on all that land again. You have a truce for 10 years or whatever to get your get your manpower back up and be able to try to take that. And I believe that it's like, it's essentially useless to when you conquer territory for five or 10 years. And um, it is mostly useless for 25, I think. So there's a chance that you can immediately take that back. And you might have rebels who are trying to help you immediately take that back. The diplomatic system will kind of push against someone becoming too much of a superpower. Yeah, and that's that's actually a great point. And and then a lot of these, you know, for those reasons, and then for a few others, uh, power is not zero sum uh, in these interactions. Like you might have lost half your territory, but it's almost certain that your opponent didn't take that territory. Like a lot of times, you see a lot of settlements that are clearly just like I'm going to throw a lot of speed bumps in your path by forcing you to release this group of crummy little like nations that were swallowed up early and they're not going to last <laughs> you know they're 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 doomed uh but they are things that you have to go put in the work and sort of reconquer uh but it, it does mean that like yes your power, power is diminished uh by x amount but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else gained that much it just means that it's been made more diffuse and there's still a chance to go scoop it back up Whereas in a civilization, if I lose a city, I'm like, I'm done. I'm gone. Mm-hmm. This is just not worth my time. And unless I feel like I can immediately retake it with an army in that current war. But if there's a war that I think is unwinnable and I lose a city that I have any kind of investment in, well, I just say no. Okay, so Civ. Uh, let's get into Civ here. <laughs> I think that problem was at its worst in Civ Five, in particular, because the strategies were so at odds with each other like if you were not going for a full-on like military victory then the chances are you had a pretty compact small little empire where you couldn't you couldn't be like russia in world war ii and be like yeah all right i lost kiev <laughs> you know we'll let we'll let stalingrad go under siege uh you know but in the end 
we can still keep fighting. If you're going for a culture win or something like that, and like somebody gets one of those cities from you, the monitor is going out the window <laughs> uh, at that point. Like, and I'm probably following it. Um, whereas I think in like a game like Civilization 2 and to an extent Alpha Centauri, cities were practically your currency, right? Like they, they, you know, yeah, you fought the war with soldiers and units, but to an extent, like the city was your playing piece and you could exchange them pretty aggressively uh, in these wars. And that made it a little easier, provided you didn't let, didn't let things get past the tipping point for, for too long, to keep these wars uh, going. You know, most famously, there was that Reddit threat of the, uh, you know, the endless Civilization II war. Uh, and I see not, not exactly those dynamics popping back up in Civilization VI, but uh, they've definitely opened things up quite a bit more to where you aren't punished for founding a lot more cities and therefore losing a city isn't necessarily like this instant death blow. Uh, but the other thing that's happening in Civ is that, so, so Civ, there were certain strategies that a couple types of setbacks, if they happened to people pursuing a couple types of strategies were like game ending cataclysms. Like your strategy was off the rails and you probably weren't going to be able to get back on the rails. Hey, do you remember uh, quitting instantly when you didn't get Leonardo's workshop? Because <laughs> <laughs> I sure as hell did that a ton. <laughs> yeah, there were... Uh, oh, God. You know, I always had a few... Uh, there, there was a few wonders where... Especially if you were close, right? Like, if you're like, all right, two turns, I'm going to complete this. And then it's like so and so is going to complete, yeah, Leonardo's workshop, and it's like okay, the hell for with the, this. For the children amongst us, Leonardo's workshop in Civilization Two would instantly upgrade all of your units to whatever the, the current tech was. Yeah, so all your yeah. bowmen would become musketeers or whatever, and uh, that was really helpful. <laughs> the other thing, though, is Civ, and so many strategy games like Civ are basically trying to funnel you toward these endgame conditions. And it's a bit like the XCOM problem. If you don't sort of hit your marks, if you don't hit your milestones at each stage of the game, it's going to be that much harder for you to catch up later. And so you 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 have sort of a persistent mid-game problem, I would say, in Civilization 2, where you're becoming acutely aware that your strategy isn't, like your strategy is probably not, it does not have enough runway to to get airborne, and that becomes profoundly frustrating. And you could play through it, but you know, you play enough Civ games, you kind of have an eye for whether this is a a run worth preserving or not, and you you know you you know when to bail out. But that's also kind of frustrating because then I think it tends to make Civilization a game where. It's either a boring processional toward victory where, yeah, you face a couple challenges, but you overcome them because you kind of knew what, to knew what to anticipate and then you win. Or it's a story of, you know, you throwing a whole bunch at the wall and seeing what sticks in terms of games. And I don't find either of those is really that satisfying because what Civ doesn't really lend itself to is something goes really wrong in the Middle Ages and you say, okay, that happened, but what a great comeback I'm about to mount. 
that's not me playing Civ. That's never me playing Civ anymore. Yeah, I find I find like I I tend to bounce off Civ games, specifically the Civilization games, a little bit lately, and I think that might be a driving part of it. I, I agree that six feels like it's more on track than 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 five was. Um, but I mean, I, as 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 you were talking about this, I think about you know people having debates over whether you move your very first unit, your settler unit, on the first turn, or you found exactly where you are is a is 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 a point of sort of high debate because built into that is the assumption that oh if you move too many spaces in two turns you're set back for the you know next hundred turns of the game which is I mean I think to your point like like that sense of sort of exploration and and trying different things it feels like you you know again I think it comes back to pattern sort of that pattern definition it's almost. It's almost like, you know, you ha you have this sort of set pathway to stay on the track for the end result that you want. And if you encounter some sort of, you know, obstacle or block or something like that, um, it, yeah, I mean, I, I just agree. I think it, it, it doesn't feel very satisfying or worth it to try and recover from that, because even if you do, um, yeah, it just it's it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're ba you're you're bound for the end state, which is interesting to me because I feel like. It is the same mindset that I'm approaching EU4 on, like we were talking about earlier, right? It is it is that, you know, objective-based pursuit of a an end goal. And there's something different about e, the way EU4 handles it, where it's like, oh, okay, I'll just go back and restart. And I'm actually pretty happy with that because I feel like I've learned something going into it. And I find that intensely not satisfying in the civilization context and i can't i can't totally square why that is but i i think you're on the right track i can i can okay go <laughs> all right then like i said it, it's about pressure where is the pressure coming from the pressure in the games we're talking about liking quitting is coming from us it's internal pressure oh yeah it's okay. you are trying to achieve whatever is happening in eu4 and occasionally that's a race that's you know first one to the new world or you know, i'm not sure about all the achievements but um most of the time it's can i conquer this amount of territory by this date as this country mm -hmm. and other countries are in your way but the pressure is still on you to achieve this it's not they're in a science race with you they're in a culture race with you um with rimworld the pressure is obviously internal any kind of city builder when you were mentioning patrician rob uh um the thing that came to mind for me was the impressions city building games which mm -hmm. are a bunch of systems that sort of interlock and grow increasingly complex but if you absolutely have to recover from a massive fire or whatever you can say okay i'm gonna tone this down for a few years or whatever rebuild my my uh my population and then get back into the marble business um so and a lot of these are you know baked into the games themselves they are single player games that are designed to player versus environment um obviously the case with rimworld and city builders or or even like a darkest dungeon but darkest dungeon and xcom are structured fairly similarly the key difference is that the pressure in Darkest Dungeon comes from, am I overextending when I go into this dungeon? In XCOM, the pressure is, if I don't accomplish this, the Avatar Project or whatever in XCOM 1, the, the aliens are going to get way stronger the next time I go out, regardless of whether I succeed or not. I'm getting the mutons. I'm getting the super mutons. 
that's happening, so I need to push forward because it's in primarily external pressure. And this doesn't necessarily make for a better game or worse game. Like, I have loved Civilization for most of my life at this point. Um, but it does make for a game that you're more satisfied in quitting on your own terms. Well, I'll tell you what I find frustrating about this, Rowan. A week ago, Yumi and Fraser solved video games. We solved and now, I've, what makes and now it... we've done it again. But we haven't, though. Because what you're proposing is that these end game states and these fail states, while, while there are some uh, conclusions that can be drawn, like the, there are some like patterns that can be identified, uh, you seem to leave a lot to subjectivity. And Rowan, what I'm expecting out of this conversation is objective, <laughs> prescriptive instructions for people making games so that they'll always have satisfying setbacks. All right, then. Use your playtesters. That, that is my objective thing. Talk to, talk to the people who are playing your game about, like, what is their driving motivation. If their driving motivation is, I want to tell this story about me within this game world then you probably have a game that's good for the this setback idea. If it's like, I want to compete with my opponents and defeat them, then you have a civilization like competitive race to the end. And, you know, see what see what they're getting at and see if maybe you want to change that. I wonder, I mean, I, I, I genuinely don't know, but I wonder how often the question is addressed about if you lose this game, is it still a fun game? Do you still look back on it as a positive experience? I mean, I think absolutely there are some developers who clearly are thinking through that, like, you know, whether it's lose the game or lose the war or, you know, you know, whatever, kind of you, you're given this setback. But I mean, I, I feel like when I look at the way some other games are structured, and I think, again, I think you can kind of go through the Firaxis, uh, uh, you know, catalog right now. I think those i mean I'm, I'm sure they're having the conversation but i don't see the same result in it it doesn't feel like there is something within the game that is giving me a reason here here it is like it doesn't need to be the win what it needs to be is a reason to feel like my time has a positive result even though you know even though I've ended in this negative space that I'm, I'm currently in, that can be, yeah, but you told a cool story or yeah, but you know, now, you know, you're, you're armed with more knowledge that you can take to the next one that is, you know, a different experience. And, and I don't, I don't, I, I think there could be more discussion, more thought, more time spent. And to your point, you know, with the, with the testers, even specifically about when you hit a bad patch, when you lost that war, when you lost that game, when you lost that city, what could we do at that moment to still make you want to persist or come back? And I, I don't, I don't know. I do. You, do you think that conversation is happening? I mean, it probably is, depending on the game. Like, if I, I think XCOM two, for the first few, for the first few plays. I think was really good at having that idea of, oh, I need to pay more attention to this. I need to, to, to have, you know, made more money earlier. I need to have researched this tech before I did. And next time I can go into that. And then it sort of hits a point where it's like, no, that was just kind of some random BS. And right. yeah. I, I, so I think, I think that like this is at some level just a, we're making 
we're having we're ha- having these complex games exist and some of them are going to be a little better at accomplishing these things than others and that becomes you know the sort of thing that i would like to see what happens with this XCOM 2 expansion that is mm-hmm. seems to be monumentally ambitious and adding systems from literally every tactics RPG that everyone has ever liked. And maybe that is going to be enough to create, you know, more interesting cushions like Rob was talking about that will make failure states something that you can come back from. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just be cool things attached to a game that had a lot of really good ideas and a couple big frustrations. I mean, I think there is something to be said about games, though, that specifically make death a game element. And this is, I, I would say, less common in, but certainly exists, but it's probably less common in strategy. But, I mean, Dark Souls is the classic example of that. But I also think, you know, we've, we've been sort of parallel um, and sort of in the sphere of talking about games, you know, roguelikes, which are fundamentally based on the idea of a a death with a result after the death that allows you to expand further, go further, have some sort of benefit or bonus or can buy some, whatever. And I mean, I think there is, you know, the, the, the reason those can be very fun um, though. They're certainly not everybody's cup of tea. Um, what a cliche that was. Oh my God. Anyway, I, I think the That's reason why bag. It, <laughs> <laughs> is because there is such a foundational level of this component that is how do we create a game where death is a fundamental part of the role, loss is a fundamental part of the role, and want put you in a position where you want to come back. And, you know, games like Dead Cells and, uh, you know, Everspace and Rogue Legacy are ones that, you know, I, I feel like have a really good handle wrapped around that. And I think other games where fail states are inevitable are, you know, could, like... Like there, it feels like there's more that can be done to be able to take something out of a game, whether it's even just knowledge or experience or whatever, and cycle that into the next game as an evolutionary sort of stage. Um, and I think you're right. The, the when it's just the random BS that kills you, that is the worst scenario. When it's it, that's sort of the Hearthstone effect. I mean, I think you see that a lot of people complaining about Hearthstone these days. I think entirely, you know, legitimately, which is that it has become a game of fundamentally about you know random number generation, and that your the best laid plans can be absolutely crushed by a dice roll of a one versus a dice roll of a six. And I find those the least satisfying sort of setbacks where it was just nothing I could have done. I rolled a six should have rolled a one or vice versa. That, that that, those games can go straight to hell. I can't stand that. Or the first three cards that you get stink. So it's game over at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I I think so for, for a game to change your understanding of like what failure or death mean in those games, like it has to be introduced early though. It has to be like, almost a semi-positive experience where like within that first hour or two of play things go off the rails and you're killed and you get to start over um you know that's how a lot of these these other games do function i think the reason a lot of grand strategy kind of fail that test is they're not really designed to wipe you out that quickly so you can be Mm -hmm. uh just completely stinking up the joint but you may not really know that, especially if like you're, the game sort of lets you get away with being passive and nobody just like really goes to the trouble of kicking your ass. Um, but 
because like if I if I'm playing something and really quickly I learn like oh I failed and I'm dead now but that's okay that's clearly like the game's kind of like happy that I did and I restart and it's no big deal then that's that's then that's one set of assumptions but if I am 6 8 hours into a game and it just feels like I'm in this like Kobayashi Maru uh scenario <laughs> then that feels very different that doesn't you know cuz now like no I obviously like I've I've survived this long I'm not meant to I'm not meant to die like this um I you know I'm meant to be able to get out of this situation that that becomes a difficult thing to by that point it's like too late to teach your player oh it's okay if this didn't work out you can you can start over but because because by that point i think you've already kind of conditioned them that you know they're the star of the story and the story is about their progress towards some form of victory and if you kill someone off early they you know you learn pretty quickly that okay this is <laughs> you know this is a story about my vulnerability and overcoming that it's also how death is actually treated when you achieve it or how the lost state is um and i think this is something that has changed a lot in the last 10 years in non-strategy games you have a lot of games that are um death is not a punishment death is a thing that happens a game like super meat boy like when, mm. after you finish a level in that and you see all the times you died as your little replay runs across the screen that's really neat that's like a reward for all those deaths that you had you come back immediately like you just you die you press a button and you're back on the level again you're, there's no loading screen it's not taking a bunch of time to say hey this is this is a huge mistake that you made it's like yep you're gonna die and have fun with that um, this is something that Vlambeer games do really well too, is like you die, you immediately right back on whatever you want to be doing. Um, they're incredibly fast at turning, turning what is a supposed failure into, I'm just going to, you know, be right back in this. Um, Dark Souls has its mechanics that kind of do things that whatever. Um, there are enough people who can talk about Dark Souls. Uh, but th this whole idea that, you know, maybe there are more interesting things than an arcade game that's trying to eat quarters as our model. And for a while, that model was kind of, we want to make you the star and have a game that looks hard but plays easy. And so you're like this godlike thing running around and destroying everything. But now there's this idea that, no, you, you are actually vulnerable. You will lose. But that's kind of cool. Um, one way that roguelikes will reinforce this as an idea is when you get achievements in those games those achievements will unlock things you get to level three with you know a certain character um uh the what's it amplitudes dungeon of the endless like mm. you you that's a roguelike with up to four characters in your party you start with two you run into somebody in the dungeon they say hey i'll tag along for you know however much money you get them and if you go through three more levels with them now you can unlock them at the start of your next game so you're, you're kind of getting rewarded for going a little bit further each time and the expectation is that you might lose, but you're still getting a reward. I don't know if strategy games can or should do anything yeah. like that, but this is a way that, you know, this idea is being reinforced in general game culture. And in some ways, I think it's coming from strategy games. Uh, it, it's kind of this combination of uh, 
strategy games where you can lose with roguelikes where you're expected to lose. And as these things become more sort of generally popular, we're seeing other games realize that, you know, just having a single person going through a campaign for 12 hours is not the only possible model. I mentioned Steel Division at the at the start of the show. And, and again, it's it's not a situation where obviously you're given anything new. But to to my mind, I, I, that game, the campaign. I'm actually talking about just the the regular, like just okay. the, just skirmish mode, even to to some degree. Um, but I, I I find just or just kind of at a base level, what I really liked about Steel Division, despite despite the fact that I was largely terrible at it, um, though I certainly improved the more I played, was this sense that it did give you an indication of like, I never came out of the battles without knowing why I'd lost and what to do next. And while that's not, you know, you don't unlock this gun until you reach level three. I mean, I think in some ways it really is sort of its own unlock of understanding how, Oh, that's how anti-tank works or that's how line of sight works or that's how this works or that's how this works. I felt like I was coming out of every game that I was playing, particularly in the skirmish mode and to a lesser extent, uh, the campaign mode with a better understanding of how to activate the colossal tool set that is, that was given to me at the start. Um, and I found that very, very satisfying in a way that felt to me a little like the, the strategy game mind version of, of a roguelike where, where I went into every battle, certainly for the first you know, multiple times I played expecting to lose. I was kind of going and going, okay, I'm going to lose. I just want to get a little farther this time. I just want to, you know, this time I just want to get my, my anti-tank set up in a place that has actual line of sight down a road where tanks might actually come. And doing those things gave me that same sense of kind of forward progression and accomplishment, despite the fact that, you know, it took me a, a long time to start actually winning skirmish battles. And, you know, there's variety of reasons for that, you know, largely because I was doing a one V one and, you know, it's, it's a better game when you're, you know, playing with AI teammates on your side. Um, but like, I, I, it, what the what the losses ultimately gave me was this great sense of satisfaction at overcoming whatever those obstacles were and kind of knocking the dominoes down one by one. And I think that's the strategy version of of that same idea. And it's the same thing, honestly, that has happened with EU4 over, you know, countless playthroughs uh, with it. You know, it, it, that game is so full where where something like Steel Division is so full of actually just the tools of the trade, the, you know, the divisions themselves and different anti-tank and different air eu4 is so full of various mechanics that you just sort of topple them down one at a time one after another and it that is the the kind of you know the the button press that drops the little uh food pellet that keeps me coming back to press the button again and again it's also worth mentioning that these are matches that are like 30 minutes long right yeah but what we're describing there, though, is is not an easy thing. Like it's it's impressive when a real time game can sort of pull that off because like you can try to learn StarCraft that way. You're not gonna have any right. time of it though. Like you're like you'll just lose a ton and sort of be left to work out exactly what is going wrong, and that can actually take quite a bit of uh you know really hard experience. It probably behooves you to just go like look up 
uh, build orders and sort mm-hmm. of walkthroughs and, and to sort of have the game unpacked for you a little bit. What what I do find interesting in Steel Division, there's two things. One is um, something I've enjoyed is that as I've been playing the game, I'm I'm encountering army builds uh, in the campaign. In the campaign, I'm being forced to play with armies that I never would have built, and then online, I'm encountering army builds that I also never would have built. Because, you know, to start out, I had kind of a uh, pretty narrow definition of what a balanced army should look like. Like, I knew my play style, and so I sort of built around that. And the cool thing about this is Steel Division's good at sort of at least giving you an idea of when you're playing it, you're seeing people employ similar building blocks in ways you had not considered. And that's always, like, you know, so if, like, you, you sort of walk into a perfectly designed like anti-tank crossfire where there's you know a blind curve around a hedgerow at the end of a village lane and there's eight an at gun that they're like having pop out into the street and take close range shots and then sort of duck away (laughs) like you realize oh like that's a that's a use i hadn't fully considered to to sort of like use it as this active ambush weapon instead of this this sort of fixed emplacement with with a decent line of sight like that's that's actually a better way to position it and to sort of have it pop out so that the enemy units get so the units get hit all at once so they freak out and can't fire back is super effective that's an impressive thing in steel division that you're you're able to sort of unpack what is happening a lot of the time and understand why it is happening that way and because you understand the building blocks of the game but you're you're able to see these things being employed in ways that certainly I hadn't considered. And that, in turn, changes my understanding of the game and sort of opens up my playbook a little bit as I think about like ways I can employ those lessons moving forward, uh, which is a really cool thing. And it does come from failure, but the key, the key point is that Steel Division is also just kind of good enough at providing the feedback on mm-hmm. what's happening in the game that you can sort of draw these lessons where I think a lot of, a lot of your real time games fail to do that pretty, pretty spectacularly, you know, stuff just seems to happen. Steel Steel division is extremely literal. The thing you are watching is the thing that is happening. And with most RTS games, there's like a little level in between that, you know, a special skill that might be happening that you can't necessarily see if you don't know exactly what the animation is. Yeah. Steel division, that anti-tank comes out of the bushes and you're like, Oh shit, my tank is dead. And it is. And like, yes, there's math behind it, but it's not, yeah, it's not like your typical RTS example where it's like, Oh, that does 75 damage. Uh, and it's plus three against armor, but if your armor is like you know plus two, then here's how that's calculated out. That's not really what Steel Division is doing. You're right. It is like it is it is literally just oh god that tank that that AT gun is there. Quick back. Oh damn, didn't <laughs> didn't make it. Yeah, you know that I might have the chance to get out of this. My front armor is pretty good, but uh, I don't really like that chance. And it, it's pretty. There are times where the armor suddenly gets pierced and it's bullshit, but it's the sort of bullshit that, like, you can see how that bullshit happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that I, don't does- know. I think Steel Division is really special in that way. I think that's it's an incredibly rare game. In a, it's not the sort of game that I normally like, but I do really like it because it has this this really sensational combination of 
an abstract World War II game with exactly what I see on the screen is exactly what I'm expecting to get. Yeah, and I think it does uh, somewhat solve the problem of it feeling like there are dice rolls that you can't see and also couldn't affect, uh, which is which is really helpful. Um, so I guess to, to wrap this up, how much do you think... You know, I was being facetious earlier, but how much do you think you can design for satisfying uh, setbacks for for problems that will crop up in stymie players versus how much of it is just really subjective? And it really depends on just making sure messaging and expectations attract the right temperament players to the kind of game you're designing. Well, one thing is to put it in your game's motto. Dwarf Fortress says losing is fun and immediately gives you the idea that, you know, you're going to mess up. And messing up can be hilarious. So, like, you you can just straight up market it and say, yeah, you're going to lose. And it's going to be cool. And that's actually legit helpful. Put that on your loading screens. Yeah, I I actually really agree with that because, I mean, when when I look back at a lot of the games we've talked about, there is a fundamental idea there of, of, of iteration and, and kind of moving forward. I, I mean, I do think, you know, you, you can say that. And if the, you know, the death, there's no progress or it feels capricious or it's based entirely on, you know, something that you could not have predicted um, that certainly, you know, mitigates that. So I think, I, I think you can put that on the box, but I also think that the thing that, you know, RimWorld and I haven't played Dwarf Fortress, but I really do need to um, seem to share in common uh, is this idea that it, it it feels like every time I can take something and, and move forward with that and learn how things work. Like you gave the example of, oh, I didn't understand how cleaning works and how that impacts, you know, the, the people's uh, mood and how that changes, whether they're likely to get in a fight with each other or go in, you know, go crazy and set the building off, whatever. Um, but like that's that's the thing that that I, that I think all these really good games about, you know, satisfying setbacks have in common, which is. There is there is the expectation. There is some element of the game that seems built around the aspect of not winning or dying or whatever, and providing a a experience, positive experience within that, and then something after the fact that you can take to the next game. And when you have that, all three of those in whatever form fits the game you're building, I, I mean, you know, I think it gives you a, a definite head start. I don't think it's a guarantee because dying sucks most of the time <laughs> and in the game <laughs> so in, I think, also in games I, th- I think another thing is how how do your systems interact and how transparent are they and how transparent are those interactions a game like RimWorld is a lot like Steel Division in terms of the, the things that you're literally seeing or the things that are literally happening that dirt is on the floor and it can be occasionally hard to see your character's moods, but you can sort of get the idea of when they're grumpy. And I played it a little bit recently, and they've added some more uh, some more notifications that show when your characters are really getting unhappy. Um, but the idea that, okay, you can figure out exactly what it is that's going wrong, or has gone wrong, and you will know that the next time, or even just this is a fixable thing right now um 
that transparency is really important. You have to have these systems that are not all the same same system. So in EU4, while it is possible to come back from a loss, it is not as entertaining as Crusader Kings, in large part because your nation doesn't feel like it's a connected it's a connecting set of systems your nation feels like it's all a single system in civilization that aspect is even worse like you are you are creating a set of cities especially civ 5 like this is my culture city this is my production city this is my money city very much so yeah and if you lose one of those, you don't have culture anymore. You don't have money anymore. Where in EU4, it's kind of spread out, so um, it's it's still all one thing, but it's not all one thing that you can just like slice a limb off of. Where in Crusader Kings, each of your each of the counties is it's kind of its own idea with its own people with its uh. I don't know. I don't want to say personality because you really have to build specifically to get that. But um, it doesn't feel like those are, you know, a limb that is part of your character's whole story because you have these other things going on. Your character still has a family. Your character will still have their alliances, even if they can lose two counties from their domain. Uh, th- there are a bunch of different systems that you know how they work and how they're going to interact with one another. And to go into Patrician or um, Caesar or Rimworld, these, these things are even more specific individual systems that you can see their interactions. And the more that you can see that, I think the, the easier it is to understand why you're losing and think that losing is entertaining because you can rebuild those systems. I think... Where I'm coming down on this is, I I just I I feel like I I think Rowan you're you're onto you're you're mostly correct. I just feel like so much of this is subjective that it's just going to be aligning those expectations and systems is going to be really really difficult. And I guess like I'm like I'm coming away from this conversation feeling more and more like and and maybe that's just because i've been surprised too much in this conversation by the different reactions we all have to different forms failure can take Hmm. but i'm coming away with it with more of i guess an appreciation for how difficult it actually is to to build these systems like i can i can point to a lot of cases where that just didn't work for me or it didn't work for you and i can sort of unpack why that is but at the same time I can also easily imagine people for whom that's that's the special sauce, and I'm and uh, you know I'm 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 sort of uh, I'm struggling with that a little bit as I'm, as I'm trying to you know like <laughs> grope toward these prescriptive uh, answers. I mean, maybe we can't solve video games every week, <laughs> but, we were, we, but we were on such a we were, we were on such a good streak, Rowan. We were we were we were on fire. But yeah, this is a subjective thing. This is a thing that takes iteration. It takes playtesting. It takes probably release and, you know, consistent support after release. A game like Darkest Dungeon was in early access for a year before its full release, has been patched, just got an expansion. Like, Darkest Dungeon on its 
initial early access release was a really good idea and set of games, but it was not like the ultimate thing that was going to be obviously my game of the year that it was, you know, when it got its official release next year. And so we're going to do a hell of a show on that game. Yeah, we're, we're finally going to do that. I'm go- actually probably going to play it as soon as we uh, we turn off here. That's where we get um, the expansions. We can just now be topical. Yeah. Um, Paradox games obviously are getting the most support of pretty much anything ever. Uh, they're getting expansion, two or three That's expansions true. every year that come with major patches, come with major new systems. Most of the time, these are improvements. Um, sorry, estates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> estates aren't even that bad. They just don't add that much, I think. But yeah, in, in general, most of these Paradox games come with uh, improvements that make them, you know, they're getting better and better at getting what they want because they have tons of playtesting and tons of feedback. Uh, so at a certain level of subjectivity becomes objectively an idea that you, this is a thing that takes practice and iteration and work. Well, I think we're going to, we're going to leave it there. Um, someday we're going to solve video games. Uh, so, someday we'll, we'll, we'll firmly solve this. I don't know. I just, I mean, you're you're right. Like playtesting, iterating, all this stuff—that's great. But I need these hard prescriptive answers. I need I need conclusions to be drawn. I, also, this might not be a thing you want. Like Civilization is a great game series. We're a little down on it recently, yeah. but that doesn't mean that you know Civilization is not the dominant strategy game that's, for a good reason. Yeah. That's very true. I remember. Um, one of the worst conversations I've ever had about video games uh, was a couple years ago at E3. I was at this table at a Bethesda party with um, Dan Stapleton and Greg Tito. And then some dude showed up. And he had his girlfriend <laughs> in tow. But her, her input was not required for the evening. It, like He made that pretty clear uh, at the outset. So we're already on a good start. Oh, it was it was great. Like she would occasionally try to join the conversation, and one of us would be like, "Hey, so you know what? What brings you to E three? Are you are you into this stuff?" And he he just he would then answer for her. He'd be like, "Oh yeah, she's a she's Gross. a senior at Ford." I was like, "Okay, cool. This is this is great." But at some point, he started holding forth on the creative bankruptcy of the Call of Duty series. And he started explaining, and I shit you not, this is like 100% true. Somebody was actually making this case. He was like, and, and this was this was a number of years ago. So, like, we had not hit peak Call of Duty. Like, peak Call of Duty had a number of successful games left in the tank. And he was sitting back there and he was saying, like, they're totally screwed, man. Like, just the same thing year after year. They're not reaching any new audience. They're not growing their audience. I'll tell you what they need to do. They need to make Call of Duty more like Zelda. <laughs> he was like, wow. They, he was like, if they did that, I'd be there in a heartbeat. If they were like, we're going to take Call of Duty and we're going to like make it like Link to the Past, I would be there in a shot. It'd be great. Tell me you guys wouldn't love that. Tell me you guys wouldn't love that. 
That, but they're not, <laughs> not going to do it. So they're totally screwed. That game sucks. And and the problem was like you know we we sort of like pushed back on that, but he just wouldn't take no for the answer and just started like doubling down on it. And I guess that's maybe what we do, what we tend to do a little bit with civilization in these conversations, which is <laughs> that like because we're a little burned out on Civ and a little tired of of certain structures in civilization, it's very easy for us to go like, oh, not this shit again. Boy, is this most successful strategy franchise in history totally hosed and creatively bankrupt. What they really need to do is make it more like Crusader Kings. And then they got us. Then it'll be great. So what you're saying is we can't solve video games till we solve ourselves. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's totally fair, though. I mean, it is sort of like being surprised that Madden is Madden every year. Well, it's just a football game again. Okay, yeah, it probably is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I mean, I I think that's. I I, I mean, I think there are there there are subjective components to this, and I do think there are relatively objective components to, to this, which is you know while while it may not be you know my favorite game of all time anymore, I think Civilization has clearly established that it has you know it it has this lane that it has very clearly established, and it kind of moves you know in various parts of that lane, and the the positivity is you know subjective or not, but I think we've also clearly all played games that were just objectively bad at handling certain elements or the game overall as well. Um, um, and they, I, 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 so I mean, I think I think Rowan's ultimately still kind of on point, or at least with what I'm. Finally, you know, yeah, I got to give it to you. Like, I think it is all about feedback and testing and iteration. Um, you know, some of the games that we're talking about are on their third or fourth, or you know, version. Um, and some of them are, you know, are, yeah. are taking advantage of of the uh, you know early access. But I think they're all kind of exploring these things and learning from their own mistakes and their own, the feedback, the consensus feedback for the people that, you know, the, the gamers that reflect who they're trying to appeal to. Um, but to your point, I mean, you don't want to listen to every gamer either. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, you put a little just, Zelda in the civilization. I'm there. <laughs> well, I am there. I will play that, but... <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, some games losing is fun, and some games constantly restarting until you get the perfect three first city locations is also fun. And that's okay. And that will do it for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Three Moves Ahead is produced this week by Jonathan Downen, uh, who's filling in for Michael Hermes, who's on vacation. Uh, Jonathan was gracious enough to agree to come do production work for us uh, as, he, as he moonlights uh for <laughs> away from games with jobs and numerous other podcasts i don't uh, he did not run this by me just uh, I'll, I'll talk to him <laughs> <laughs> next week jonathan Downen is now our full-time three was ahead producer uh who quit in a huff from games with jobs uh i believe i believe sean's exact words were i own you who the hell told you that you can do what you want I will burn this down before I'll let anything go. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Sean, Sean just like refusing to compromise with podcast production, <laughs> just out there screaming at the, at the waveforms. Uh, anyway, you can learn more about Three Moves Ahead and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Uh, finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. This topic in particular is brought to you by our monthly uh, backer poll, uh, which we vote on once a month over on uh, patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Rowan and Sean, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.